Okay, awesome. There we go. Good morning. You guys want to go and grab your seats? Good morning, Tina. <clears throat> I work with kids, and actually sometimes they'll say things like that, like, could you hop up, and then they start hopping, or could you grab your seat, and they grab their seats. I need to stop that. Um, well, my name's, <clears throat> excuse me, my name's Andrew. I'm a member of the teaching team here at the Vineyard. And um, this morning, we'll be continuing our series in becoming a good and beautiful community, a community that reveals God's character in the world. Um, and just to get started, I actually thought we would uh, practice a little bit of generosity. David, could you pull up um, my next slide? Um, in 2010, Nikki and I went to Manila, uh, to the Philippines, and we spent a summer living with indigenous ministries that were working in urban poor communities. Uh, and during that time, we met a man named Pastor Wenchi. And Pastor Wenchi pastors a church in a slum community. He and his family have been working there for many years. Um, and so um, during our summer, we got to know them a little bit. Um, and then this past week, we actually got an email um, about some urgent prayer requests for this woman. This is Wenny. This is Pastor Wenchi's daughter. And that's her new baby son. Um, in early February, Wenny gave birth. And the birth was, was successful and natural childbirth and everything, but a bunch of subsequent medical issues came up, and eventually she was hospitalized for eclampsia, for a serious infection, and for pneumonia. Uh, and so Wendy, for the past couple of weeks, has been in the intensive care unit in Manila. Um, and we got this message, um, this email, uh, telling us that it cost about $220 a day to keep her in the ICU, and the family was out of money, and so that we, that's how we heard about this. Um, and so I'm not asking um, for money on behalf of Wendy's family today, but I want us to pray for her and pray for her family. Um, you know, I'm going to be talking on generosity, and I think one of the aspects of generosity is learning to turn our attention and our energy and our focus towards others. And so um, I have a few prayer requests up here. One is just healing for Wendy's body from infection and pneumonia, um, specifically for improving her immune system and for her oxygen saturation so that she doesn't have to be put on a ventilator again. Um, another one is for Wendy's husband, Zernan, and their, and their little children, um, just praying for them. In the course of the illness, Zernan had to quit his job so he could be with Wendy at the hospital, and so also praying for the entire finances of the family. Um, at the time of our email, Pastor Wenchi and his wife had $175 left in their bank account, and it was $220 a day. And so thank God... Um, in the course of contacting people, we were able to send money. And so financially, they're okay for right now, but we need to pray for the finances for the family. Um, so if you guys would break into pairs or groups of three and just take a few minutes to pray um, for Wendy and for their family um, so we could practice some generosity this morning. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are with us. Jesus, that, that, you, that you incarnated into our world that you took on the weakness of humanity. And Jesus, that on the cross you carried um, our weakness and our sickness and our sin and our death. And so, Jesus, we know that you are very close to us in our suffering, and we know you're very close to Wendy right now. And Jesus, we know you're very close to her husband who doesn't know what's going on and to her little baby who can't be with mom right now. Jesus, we know that you care. And so we, um, yeah, we just remember that first of all. And Jesus, we all pray your kingdom come. Jesus, we pray your kingdom come to Winnie's body. Jesus, we pray your healing and your wholeness come to her body. Jesus, we pray your kingdom come to the situation. 
Jesus, we pray that what the enemy would intend for evil, God, that you would turn out for good. We pray that that the destruction that the enemy would try and, and wreak, God, that it would turn out for redemption and healing. And Jesus, we pray your kingdom come to the finances of that family, God. We know that um, that poverty and, and health are very tightly connected. And so, Jesus, we pray that, that this would not be for their ruin, God, but we pray that you would provide. We, we believe that in your creation there is sufficiency. We believe, Lord God, that in your church there is enough. And so, Lord God, we just pray for your overabundance to come into their lives. And Jesus, this day, as we, um, as we talk about generosity, would, would you stir our hearts to do the work of generosity? Nobody was ever helped from, from talking about generosity, I don't think. Jesus, would you stir our hearts? Jesus, would you move our hands? Jesus, would you not... Um, would we not force it? Would we not try and, and will ourselves to be people that we're not yet? But would you transform us so that we could become a generous people, so that the world would look and say, why, why do they give so freely? Jesus, would you come and be with us here? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Pour out across these words. Pour out across all of our lives. We long to be changed this morning and not just to sit for 35 minutes. Just pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for doing that. Um, I appreciate that. For the actual, you can uh, go on to the next slide there, David. For the message today, um, it, it just seemed so applicable as I got that email about Wenny. Of just, you know, I'm, I'm here teaching on generosity. What does it mean to be generous in the midst of suffering or something like that? So thank you for that. Um, for the text today, uh, I selected Acts 4, 32 to 35, and it says this. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Acts is a book that is filled with amazing things. It follows the story of the early church as they're filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to declare that Jesus is the good king of this world. And the way they declare that Jesus is king is pretty interesting. The book is filled with healings and with visions. There even are a few prison breaks in it. It's pretty interesting. And these, these verses, I think, are also pretty interesting. In them, we learn that the church had gone through a dramatic shift in how they viewed property and how they related to possessions. We're told that God's empowering presence was working within them and that as a result, poverty in the church community was overcome. There was no poverty in the early church at this point. There were no needy persons among them, and that's amazing. You know, many times when we look at a piece of scripture that um, doesn't make sense to us automatically or seems too good to be true, um, we sort of read over those. Um, It would be easy to say of this text, oh, that was then, that was the early church, that was Bible times, Um, and this is now. But I don't think we can make that distinction in scripture. I don't think that exists so easily. While the events described here happened in a specific place, specific culture and time, 
Um, we need to ask what the move of God then and the life of the church then means for us here today. And so as we go through this text, please know that we can't just try to copy what we see here and assume that that's what God is doing. Instead, we need to ask what it will look like for the generosity of God, the generosity of the kingdom, to be expressed in our lives today, here. A little bit later, we'll have a chance to practice some of that. I'm pretty convinced that, um, that knowledge does not change people, uh, that information doesn't change people. And so I want us to, to actually be able to practice some of this generosity later. Um, but first, we'll, we'll kind of gain a basis for what that all means. Since I was asked to teach on being a generous community, and, and this is kind of like a radically generous community, um, I, I, I asked this question of how did they become so radically generous? What was it that made, them, that made them this community that was so generous, if we're trying to become a more generous community? And, and sort of three questions uh, or three answers emerge in the text that answer that question. The first is that the church community had moved from a position of ownership to one of stewardship. They had shifted their orientation uh, toward possessions. The second is that God was powerfully moving among them. And the third is that the community was able to recognize both the needs and the gifts that existed among them. So I'll briefly speak on all three of those. First, we'll talk about the shift from ownership to stewardship. Verse 32 says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. It's worth saying that this text doesn't denounce private property. Private property wasn't denounced in the church. It says that people sold their property as there was need. So it's not that you had to sell everything to become a Christian. Instead, what is described in the text is a shift in the way people related to their possessions. The people of the church had moved from a value of ownership to one of stewardship. Ownership implies the sole right and ability to do what you want with a possession. The possession is yours to use and control as you see fit. You own it. The narrative that ownership is built upon is scarcity. It goes something like this. In this world, there is not enough of anything, and so I need to protect and maintain what I have, or I won't have enough. Um, Anyone who has ever tried to share a valuable possession with someone else knows that keeping it to yourself, controlling it more tightly, is far easier. We all have those, those prized possessions, and we know that to trust someone else with it is actually pretty hard. In fact, to own something, you only need one person. To own something, you really only need one person. And indeed, more people just complicate the ownership um, and control because everyone is attempting to have their way with the item. The result of this is that the ownership narrative will actually prevent relationships from growing or will end them altogether. If you only need one person to own something, then you really don't need relationships to have stuff. The narrative of scarcity and ownership can actually twist how we view possessions. At some point, we no longer want a possession for its usefulness or its beauty, we simply don't want others to have it because keeping them from having it means that, uh, that we control it in a sense. And, and the way I've seen this expressed a lot in my life recently is, as I said, I work with kids. I direct an after-school program. And predominantly, I work with kinder through five, so pretty young kids, um, or I used to at least. Now I work mostly with middle schoolers. But um, I would see this conflict over ownership emerge a lot with children. Um, I remember one day a young girl came up to me very upset and said, Mr. Andrew, Mr. Andrew, um, and I asked her what was wrong, and she told me that another student, another little girl, had colored the most beautiful coloring sheet. 
Um, she had carefully pulled it out of the coloring book, and she had used crayons to color every little spot, and all within the lines, of course. And it was beautiful. But the girl who had colored this coloring sheet, after a while, she grew bored with it. She had colored it, she had filled it in, and she just kind of left it alone. And the other girl, noticing this beautiful coloring sheet, and wanting to have it, wanting to see it, asked if she could have it. She knew that the other girl didn't care any longer. But the girl who had colored the sheet, as soon as she found out that the other girl wanted it, she took the sheet and she crumpled it. She destroyed it. She preferred to destroy it rather than allow the other student to have it. And all this was for something she didn't even care about. The little girl simply knew that, coloring, that the coloring sheet was hers and she could do whatever she wanted with it. Stewardship is quite different. As a steward of something, you have been entrusted with a possession that is actually someone else's. You have been given the possession to do with it what its owner would ultimately desire. In the narrative of stewardship, another has provided what you have. For the follower of Jesus, it is God who has given possessions as gifts to be shared and cared for. Scarcity doesn't apply to the narrative of stewardship because there isn't a constant shortage of what we need. God has provided enough. God has provided enough. And so we don't need to live in competition or distrust of others. When we begin to think of possessions beyond ownership and instead embrace stewardship, we are surprised by the overabundance of God's provision. The text tells us that the church was one in heart and mind. They had moved past isolation and competitiveness as a means of surviving and protecting themselves, and instead... They were reorienting their lives. They were reorienting their lives to share everything and were able to enjoy trusting and cooperative relationships because you simply cannot share without others. See, ownership only requires one person, but sharing, stewardship, requires community, relationships. One of the ways I've seen this expressed, that, that stewardship requires other people, was during my summer in Manila. Like I said, in 2010, I was in Manila, um, and I lived with another American named Patrick. The two of us, we lived with a community of former street boys. So there were about 25 of us living in this house in a slum. And, um, yeah, that's a picture of some of the guys I lived with. Some of the guys have on costumes. They don't wear electrical tape and, and sashes in the Philippines. That's not normal. They, they were at a dance performance, so they were in costume. Um, and so some of the guys I lived with are actually right there. And during that summer... Um, Patrick and I became friends with the boys. We spent a lot of time hearing their stories, uh, sometimes sharing our own. We laughed a lot and played a good amount of basketball, which I'm terrible at, but they were gracious. And um, I just think in the course of it all, we became friends. So it made perfect sense to Patrick and I that at the end of the summer, we would use the little bit of money we had brought with us to cook the boys a great meal, kind of a farewell meal. On our last day, we went shopping, and we came back with bags and bags of food, enough food for 25 people. And then all day long, we cooked. And what was our celebratory meal? Spaghetti with meat sauce and egg rolls. Um, And uh, for 25 people, on two little gas burners, it took all day. Um, So that night, all 25 of us sat down. We sat down to a feast. And for dessert, we even had Rocky Road ice cream. That was probably the single greatest meal I've ever had in my life. What's funny is that there were many times throughout the summer that Patrick and I um, could have spent that money on ourselves um, to eat a little bit more like Americans eat and less like our friends ate. 
I don't know how many days I craved more than the white rice and piece of chicken or fish we would have for dinner. And maybe it wouldn't have even been all that wrong to eat some extra food. After all, Patrick and I were hungry. But I'm so glad we didn't. Because had we spent all the money on ourselves, we would have missed the greatest feast of our lives. And I think that's the reality of stewardship. That as we learn to live in freedom, we actually find that there's an abundance that we get to share with one another, that God has provided. This is the first of our answers for how this community became a generous one. They had moved from ownership to stewardship. They had moved from isolating themselves as a means of provision to living in committed relationships with one another where they shared all they had. The second answer we see um, for how they became a generous community is that God was moving powerfully in them. Verse 33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Now when the text says the apostles were uh, testifying with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the text does not mean that they were just enthusiastic or um, that they had a great sense of conviction. Um, Before this text in Acts, two supernatural events occur. The first is when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and they're gifted with the ability to speak in other languages. And they do this so that people outside the church can hear God's invitation to them in a way they can understand. And the second event is when Peter and John are walking to the temple and they see a man crippled from birth. And the man asks for money and they say, we don't have any money, but what we have we'll give to you. And they say, walk in the name of Jesus. And he stands up and walks. In both of these supernatural events, a great crowd is drawn. People are marveling at the wonders of God. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit falls upon Peter and he stands up. And Peter's a guy who's not great with words. And he stands up and he goes through these beautiful homilies. He, he preaches that it is King Jesus who has done this. That it is Jesus who is King of the world. The text explains that just as God's great power was working in the apostles to proclaim Jesus so too his grace was at work in the church. As it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. The author of Acts makes it clear that the end of poverty in the church was not simply the result of a well-executed plan or the consequence of living in community with one another. Instead, it was God's grace moving in the church to do what it could never do on its own. I grew up in church, um, and when I was a boy in church, I heard the word grace a lot. Um, I was taught that grace was God's favor or acceptance of us in spite of our sin. Um, And now I think that definition is true. I I think God does accept us in spite of ourselves. I think Jesus' death and resurrection atones for us and makes a way for us. But I think that that vision of grace is seriously incomplete. That grace is just um, God kind of crossing our, our debt out of the book. The vision of, that vision of grace sees the grace of God as something technical, largely for the use of getting into heaven or removing our guilt. It says, I've sinned, I'm broken, but it's okay because God accepts me, and someday in heaven I won't sin. But what about the here and now? What about the hope to be transformed into Jesus' likeness today, before heaven? What about the hope to become a good and beautiful community? Will that ever happen, or is that just something we talk about until we get to heaven? Far from being 
Um, I love how the text puts it. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. God's grace was powerfully at work. Far from being a technical canceling of sin or removal of guilt, God's grace is his very presence in our lives, the power we need to advance and sustain our transformation. Without grace, God's power in our lives, we can never grow into the people we've been called to be. When I think through my life and hard decisions I've made to follow Jesus, I know that neither the initial decision nor the long obedience has been um, in my own power or my own vision. It is the grace of God, his empowering presence that is working in me to do what I could never do on my own. Just like our most daunting personal struggles, addressing the complex issues we face as a community, like this church did, um, facing poverty, um, those things cannot be sustained by our own efforts. It is a gift of God's very presence and relationship. His grace is what keeps our hope alive in hard times. His grace is what brings us to maturity and healing. His grace is what produces the fruit in our lives. And that is the second answer of how this community became a generous one. Not easily, not automatically, but by the empowering presence of God, by God's faithful presence. If we also hope to become a generous community, our hope must be grounded in a dependence on God's empowering presence to go with us for the long and hard process. He will sustain us with joy. He will give us those breakthroughs we need. He will give us hope uh, that no circumstances can justify. The last answer to our question is that the community was able to recognize both the needs and the gifts that existed within them. The text says, For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Previously in the text, we've told about God's powerful movement. We've been told about how the whole community is reorienting their lives towards Christ. And what does all of that radical stuff come to? It comes to everyday life. It comes to real needs and real choices. Some people in the community were in need. Other people in the community owned property. They owned houses. The people that had the property and houses, they sold it. Um, They brought the money to the apostles, and the apostles judged wisely how to distribute that money. And then there was no need among them. What strikes me about the way poverty is overcome in the early church is that throughout the story of God, there are many supernatural provisions. In the Old Testament, God rained manna down on his people in the wilderness. I think he set some quail loose, too, at one point when they were complaining about meat. Um, In the Gospels, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish. He breaks them. 5,000 people eat, and there's leftovers. At one point, Jesus tells somebody to cast a line out, catch a fish, and there's coin in the fish. So for the early church, God could have rained down manna. If they needed cash, they could have all gone fishing. God could have provided for the community in a way that was obviously supernatural, obviously divine. He had done that in the past. Yet when there was real need in the early church, he didn't. Why is that? The likely answer seems to be that God had already provided for the church and that he had given his spirit to the church to creatively realize that provision for those in need. In other words, the supernatural had already happened. It just had to be distributed. See, the Spirit gave eyes, eyes of compassion to the church to see the need, to care, to soften hearts. The Spirit gave passion and conviction that something should be done for those who go without. The Spirit 
gave creativity and thoughtfulness to assess every option, every idea, every plan. The Spirit gave wisdom to distribute the resources well. The Spirit gave generosity, setting people free to love. So often, um, we pray for God to provide, and well we should. But sometimes the answer to our prayers is unexpected. I remember that same summer in Manila, the house we lived in, it was two stories, and uh, on the second story there was a window that looked out on our street. Um, And we would hang up laundry there, and uh, sometimes I would kind of hide behind the laundry and I'd watch the street, and I'd watch our neighbors walk by, and and I'd pray for them as they went, kind of like a people-watching prayer thing. And um, as I got to know the boys in our house more, I, I began to see the common thread of all of their stories was that as their parents' marriages or their families had disintegrated, abject poverty came into their lives. And so I began to really pray um, for the healing of families and marriages. And one day I was sitting by that window and I, I was watching people. And specifically, I, I never saw dads walking with their kids. I would see moms, especially young moms, but I never saw fathers. And so one day I was just kind of moved to grief and compassion, and I was just praying, oh God, would you heal these marriages? Oh God, would you heal these families? And suddenly this wave of God's presence kind of rushed over me, which, which isn't normal at all. I don't mean to say it like it's peas and carrots. It was pretty cool. And I felt God ask me this really clear question. I felt him say, how will I heal these marriages? How will I heal these families? Immediately I knew that God wanted his people to move into Tondo. That was the neighborhood. God wanted his church to move into that neighborhood. He wanted people to learn the neighborhood, to build trust with neighbors, to slowly and surely love them, serve them. He wanted his people to come and counsel marriages and reconcile families. I knew that the answer to my prayer, oh God, heal this place, oh God, save this place, was the church. It was me, filled up and sent out to love. See, in God's story, in our world, all provision comes from him. He's the giver of every good gift. He opens his hands and satisfies. But the way he'll do that, the way he'll do that is realized in any number of ways. The third answer to our question is that by the power of the Spirit, the church was able to see the needs and the gifts that existed among them and then creatively respond to them. If we desire to grow in generosity as a community, Let us pray for the Spirit to first open our eyes to see need. Need among us, need among our co-workers and our neighbors. Let us pray for miraculous, supernatural provision. And then when we have prayed, let us humbly consider if we are the answer to our very prayers. Let us consider if God has already provided and we need only distribute it. To close, I want to ask us to engage with God about our needs and gifts, just like the early church did. You can go to the next slide there. Oh, sorry, yeah, that's the view of um, the window. You can go to the next slide. And as I was speaking, maybe it came across that I was mostly talking about material gifts, possessions in that sense, but I mean it in the, the broadest possible sense. Anything that God has given to us, anything he's entrusted us with, and that's something like, um, yeah, a car, finances, but also education, um, gifting, talent, energy, time, anything like that. See, every community has needs. Is there a specific need that is burdening you in this season? It could be something material, like finances or a vehicle. Um, 
It could be something not material, but something just as felt, just as real. It could be something like friendship, need for encouragement or perseverance in the midst of a great loss. I want you to ask God what that need is and then invite him to provide for you. I want you to remember that God gives freely out of his love and goodness. God doesn't transact. He doesn't pay people for good behavior. He just is good, right? His sun shines, his rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. He just loves. He just loves. And I want you to remember the ways that he has been faithful to his church, to his people, to this world, but also specifically to you. And then I want to ask you something else, because your gift could be material, and honestly, I think these are oftentimes the hardest gifts to share. Your gift could be something less material, a listening ear, a willingness to call someone who really needs it this week, um, helping someone look for a job, offering to babysit, an invitation to get coffee. I want you to ask the Father what that gift is and then invite him to provide a relationship that you can share it in. Remember that there are no simple designations of giver and receiver. God is, uh, we all have needs and God is working to provide for those needs. Um, We all have gifts and God wants us to use those gifts well. And I want to say that there's one point too. If you sense that God is asking you to give something, or you sense that God is asking you to trust him in something, and you feel a sense of resistance, don't just smile and try and will yourself to do that. That doesn't work. Instead, why don't you engage with God this morning about that? Why don't you ask him why there's a fear there of trusting him? Why don't you ask him why you're unwilling to surrender this thing? Why you're unwilling to share this possession or this, this thing he's given to you? Why don't you, do, why don't you do talk with God this morning? I want to invite up the worship team to play their closing song. And and while they're doing that, I want to invite the prayer ministers as well to um, move around the room. This morning, um, whether it's something that we talked about or another burden, another issue, another question, another thing burning in your heart, um, there are going to be people around the room that are available to pray with you and care for you in that. And I just want to say that, um, that no one became generous by talking about it. And so I, I really would encourage you just to engage with those questions as the music is playing and with a prayer minister, silently with yourself, to just talk with God about those things. And then to be open to that way when he gives you that relationship this week to share that gift, to share it. Um, when he calls you to trust him this week, to step out and trust him. Um, after the worship team plays, um, you guys will be dismissed. You can pick up kids from nursery and head out. And, um, And now just receive the benediction. May the God of all provision, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, may he richly provide for you. May his overabundance flow into your life, and may it overflow into the lives of others. Amen.